Welcome to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. Today is the 29th of April, 2020. It's, oh, Thursday? Wednesday? Wednesday. <laughs> I, I knew I'd get there eventually. For my money, the best reporting, kind of overall, like, 30,000-foot view reporting on the coronavirus has been by Ed Young in The Atlantic. In the show notes of this episode, I'm going to link you to an article that came out today, I guess. And Ed is exceedingly talented at taking a ton of information and synthesizing it into one long but readable article about where we're at and why. And I read this piece, essentially it was the first thing I did this morning when I got up, and I thought maybe we could do kind of a a kitchen table skim of it together. Now, uh, and that might horrify Ed were he to ever hear this, which seems unlikely, but uh, because it's not really a piece designed to be skimmed, or perhaps I should say you will benefit from reading the entire thing because that was the point of writing it. But I just wanted to go through some of the salient points together, and then I'm going to encourage you to go into the show notes and read the whole thing. Ed divides this piece up. First of all, it's titled Why the Coronavirus is So Confusing, a guide to making sense of a problem that is now too big for any one person to fully comprehend. And then it's just broken out into sections that detail the various aspects of the pandemic and why we've often had a hard time getting our arms around it. The first section is called The Virus, and it does a good job of distinguishing uh, the virus from the disease. So the virus is SARS-CoV-2. It's a coronavirus, not the coronavirus. We also know about four others that cause about a third of colds, and then two, MERS and the original SARS that are rare, but when they do occur, severe. And then, uh, says Ed, scientists have also identified about 500 other coronaviruses among China's many bat species. So, there are places in China, as Ed points out here, where people live in fairly close proximity to bats and bat droppings. And if you make those numbers big enough, the number of people and the number of bats, then the fact that every once in a while a disease would pass from bats to humans isn't super surprising. And in fact, they've done tests that show that a lot of people in these areas have antibodies from other bat coronaviruses. And then apparently SARS-CoV-2 is the one that got away. Then there's the disease. So SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, and as Ed says, COVID-19 is the disease that it causes. The two aren't the same. And I'm just quoting here, the disease arises from a combination of the virus and the person it infects and the society that person belongs to. Some people who become infected never show any symptoms. Others become so ill that they need ventilators. Early Chinese data suggested that severe and fatal illness occurs mostly in the elderly, but in the U.S. and especially in the South, many middle-aged adults have been hospitalized, perhaps because they are more likely to have other chronic illnesses. The virus might vary little around the world, but the disease varies a lot. And Ed goes on in this section to talk about the fact that that makes it very hard to figure out the case fatality rate, CFR, the proportion of diagnosed people who die. Estimates of that have ranged from 
percent to 15 percent that's an enormous variance and as ed notes the the denominator the total cases depends on how thoroughly a country tests its population and the numerator the total deaths depends on the spread of ages within the population the prevalence of pre-existing illnesses and i'm quoting here how far people live from hospitals and how well staffed or well equipped those hospitals are these factors vary among countries states and cities and so that number the case fatality rate varies too we're also seeing that COVID 19 varies in its effects from person to person that it obviously affects lungs and airways but it also seems to be affecting hearts blood vessels kidneys guts and nervous system so there's a lot at play here in terms of getting our arms around exactly what the disease is doing its nature and obviously testing around it and everything else which is making it all very hard to pin down particular numbers about how deadly this disease Part three is the research. This was a surprising section to me. There have been more than 7,500 papers published on COVID-19 since the pandemic began. However, one thing that we're seeing is that a lot of these papers are being published in ways that normally we wouldn't see in the general public. So, for example, in a peer-reviewed journal... You submit a paper to a journal, the editors of that journal see if it even seems like something they should send out to peers to be reviewed, and then if they think, oh yeah, okay, that's fine, then they send it out, and then it goes through all the peers, you know, fellow experts in the area, and if the peers deem it worthy and apparently accurate and backed up by good research, then it might get into a journal, and then maybe a beat reporter who covers that area would eventually see it, and so on and so forth. But now we're seeing a lot of things that are called preprints. So uh, Ed says a preprint is a paper that hasn't yet run the peer review gauntlet. So preprints allow scientists to share data quickly, and I'm quoting here, and speed is vital in a pandemic. Several important studies were uploaded and discussed a full month before being published. Preprints, I'm still quoting, also allow questionable work to directly enter public discourse, but that problem is not unique to them. The first flawed paper on hydroxychloroquine and COVID-19 was published in a peer-reviewed journal whose editor-in-chief is one of the study's co-authors. Another journal published a paper claiming that the new coronavirus probably originated in pangolins after most virologists had considered and dismissed that idea. So... We're coming into kind of a, a two-headed problem here where preprints are being discussed in the online community. You know, they're being tweeted, for example. So things that have not been peer-reviewed are then being seen by many people who have no expertise of any kind. And I, I mean, people like me, right? Just normal bozos. And then we have the other problem, which is this rush to be first, which causes sometimes the level of scrutiny that might be applied in a peer-reviewed journal to a piece to, I guess, be less than normal. So things are both being rushed through journals and things are being sent out into the general public with no peer review to people who do not have the skills to assess them. Section four is about the experts and we're in a real anti-intellectual age in this country, with people constantly dismissing experts and science. I mean, obviously the fact that this pandemic is about to be followed by what's going to happen as the climate crisis intensifies uh, is maybe the perfect sign of that. Ed goes through and 
really points out that there are all different kinds of experts. And it's not that there are no experts. It's that expertise, as he says, tends to be deep but narrow. So there's a great paragraph in here, which I'll just read to you. Even within epidemiology, someone who studies infectious diseases knows more about epidemics than, say, someone who studies nutrition. But pandemics demand both depth and breadth of experience. To work out if widespread testing is crucial for controlling the pandemic, listen to public health experts. To work out if widespread testing is possible, listen to supply chain experts. To determine if anybody, if antibody tests can tell people if they're immune to the coronavirus, listen to immunologists. To determine if such testing is actually a good idea, listen to ethicists, anthropologists, and historians of science. No one knows it all, and those who claim to should not be trusted. So in this pandemic situation, we're kind of running up against the fact that there are experts in various segments of dealing with this pandemic. But we're not getting a lot of synthesis in our news coverage or our online coverage, and we often don't get credentials. And you see this in all kinds of news reporting. You know, if all the talking heads trotted out on CNN, I mean, we we generally don't know very much about them, why they might be there, what their interests in the story might be, what their background in the story might be. So it's very hard for us as just regular people to figure out who we should be listening to and why and on which parts of any particular situation. Ed goes on to talk about the messaging and the fact that the messaging has often been very inconsistent and in a rush to be quick sometimes isn't thorough. Uh, He does point out that organizations like the World Health Organization are learning their lesson and are going now to give more details. They tend to be uh, acting a little more circumspectly. But obviously the the primary source of a lot of our messaging are these White House press briefings that are happening every day, which are just a, a font of bad information and confusing information. And it can be very difficult for all of us to figure out what it is we're supposed to be doing at any given time. As Ed points out, the CDC suddenly reversed its position on wearing masks without having previously clarified why the issue was so divisive, making it seem like an arbitrary flip-flop. And we're running into this time and time again, where the messaging around what we should be doing and why makes it that much harder to figure out whether we should be believing the messages that we're hearing. On the information side... We are obviously beset by the fact that we live in a society with incredible polarization and that we are in a place where even just the reporting on the pandemic has become a sign of which side you're on. Whether this is a real outbreak that we need to be uh, social distancing because of and you know, staying sheltering in place because of. Whether you believe that or not can be a clear indicator of which political party you support, which news outlets you watch. And that's not how science is supposed to work. That's not how public health is supposed to work. Uh, One person quoted in this story, and I'm just uh, quoting Ed again, says if the media won't change, its consumers might have to. Uh, Starbird, this uh, person detailed in the story, recommends slowing down and taking a moment to vet new information before sharing it. She herself is spending less time devouring every scrap of pandemic news and more time with local sources. It's the equivalent, she says, of hand-washing for the infodemic, and it might dispel the illusion that the pandemic can be tracked in real time, which is not the case. 
In the numbers section, Ed points out that the rapid pace of new information is creating a sense that we can accurately monitor the pandemic as it happens, but daily numbers tell a distorted story. As April wears on, case counts suggest that the pandemic is plateauing in parts of the U.S., but it's hard to know for sure. Ed says, as my colleagues Robinson Meyer and Alexis Madrigal have reported, 20% of Americans who are tested for the coronavirus are still getting positive results. This figure is higher than almost every other developed country and is held steady over time. It suggests that the U.S. is mostly testing people who are very likely to be infected and is still missing the majority of cases. If so, we could be seeing the case count leveling off because the U.S. has maxed out its ability to find infected people. So if we're talking about reopening because the case count has leveled off and the case count has leveled off because we are not doing adequate testing and we don't know how to find infected people, obviously you can see how that's probably not going to work out super, super well for us. In section eight, Ed talks about the narrative, and this was really instructive to me. And I know this episode is longer than a normal one, but I just think this stuff is super important. Ed gives the example of the Y2K bug. And, you know, if you're at least as old as me, you remember that on December 31st, 1999, we all expected that when the clocks ticked over to January 1st, 2000, the world was essentially going to collapse because of a problem built into uh, computer coding. And what happened was that not very much happened. There were some bad things that happened, but most of it was minimized by the people who were working to prevent the problem as soon as it became known that it might be an issue. And uh, a person quoted in the article says, there are two lessons one can learn from an averted disaster. One is, that was exaggerated. The other is, that was close. And that's so important because, for example, the original numbers in uh, an Imperial College London model that a lot of people were talking about on social media was that there could be 2.2 million Americans killed by the pandemic if we didn't do anything. So now that there clearly don't appear to be 2.2 million people about to be killed by this thing, a lot of people, particularly in the right-wing media, are saying it was exaggerated from the beginning. But remember, the important thing is that what that study said was if you don't do anything, and so we did some things. We did them slowly and poorly in many cases, but we did. And so we checked the worst possible outcomes of the pandemic. Probably. Probably. There's one, uh, one paragraph I just want to conclude by reading. And it says, The desire to name it an antagonist, be it the Chinese Communist Party or Donald Trump, disregards the many aspects of 21st century life that made the pandemic possible. Humanity's relentless expansion into wild spaces, soaring levels of air travel, chronic underfunding of public health, a just-in-time economy that runs on fragile supply chains, healthcare systems that yoke medical care to employment, social networks that rapidly spread misinformation, the devaluation of expertise, the marginalization of the elderly, and centuries of structural racism that impoverish the health of minorities and indigenous groups. It may be easier to believe that the coronavirus was deliberately unleashed than to accept the harder truth that we built a world that was prone to it, but not ready for it. That, to me, is such a devastating paragraph. I mean, if you're a regular listener to this show, you know that it tends to come from an anarchist <laughs> bent, and so you won't be surprised to learn that I, I agree with all of that. And you won't be surprised to learn that, you know, I think 
those are signs of an even deeper systemic problem that you know can't be fixed within the context of capitalism but whatever your particular political leanings it's very hard to deny that here in the united states we essentially built a system that is always on a knife's edge and takes only the the slightest of shoves and i mean if we're being honest the coronavirus uh, pandemic as terrible as it is it's not an enormous shove in this direction what's probably coming from the climate crisis is going to so much outdistance what we're experiencing right now and if this is what happens to our system when people start getting sick I mean, imagine what's coming if we don't take some kind of action. In any case, I, I can't recommend highly enough that you go to the show notes and read this whole piece because, I, again, I have just done a, a real kitchen table skim here, and there's so much more in this piece. Uh, I just I, I applaud Ed Young for being level-headed, broad-minded, and extremely clear as a writer. And uh, everything that Ed has put out that I've seen during this time has just been incredibly useful and has if i don't know if it's reassured me but it has at least allowed me to believe that i have some kind of idea what's happening and that helps fight the the fear of the complete unknown and that is really really useful it may not be inoculating me against the virus itself but it does help inoculate against panic so go to the show notes, uh, check out this article, and come back tomorrow for another episode of A Brief Chat. You can find all the previous episodes at abriefchat.com. They're usually shorter than this. And you can become a member if you'd like to support the work that I'm doing. I love you. A better world is possible. Please.